Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so happy you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers Naturals provides sustainable wellness solutions using superfoods from the hive. As I'm airing this episode on my birthday, I thought it would be fun to interview my mom, who has been my caregiver, advocate, and supporter since day one. I honestly couldn't get through anything I've been through without her. So welcome my mom, Noreen Spiro. Hello, Harper. So happy to have you here. I'm not so sure about that for me, but we'll see. (laughs) This is not her kind of thing. She's not a spotlight type person. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and where you're from? I was born in the Bronx, and my family of six moved to Queens when I was 11. And I lived there until I moved out to California for a year and sort of did my adventures and did my quote-unquote hippie life and explored San Francisco and then realized at a certain point, I think I need to get a career and do something more constructive with my life and ended up back in New York. And you've been here ever since. I have. Two blocks over how many years? Many. (laughs) Many. (laughs) So I obviously wanted to bring you on to talk about your role in my life and my role in your life. At the beginning of my life, you started seeing signs that my health was not your normal person's health. And I had many skin issues and more ear infections and more health issues than your average person. So how did you begin to navigate getting answers and clarity to what was going on and try to figure out what the deal was with me? Well, it was certainly a challenge. And obviously, I'd never had a child before. And I knew that you had a lot of infections and a lot of issues But I just had in my gut there something wasn't right, and I didn't really know where to begin. So I found out names of the best dermatologists because your skin was always erupting in one way or another. I had had you go to as many doctors as I could kind of figure out to go to to try to figure out what was going on. And really, for many, 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 many years, nobody had any clue. They basically dealt with each issue individually as it erupted which to me made no sense because I knew there was something that really needed to be handled, quote unquote, internally. I just didn't know how to do it. As a matter of fact, when you were a baby, I started giving you a macrobiotic diet. Health food stores were not as prevalent as they are now. So I took almonds and ground them to give you almond milk to see if that would be something that would help you feel better, look better, um, unfortunately, to no avail. I had dermatologists tell me I was wasting my time, but it wasn't wasting my time if I came up with some kind of answer. So I just kept exploring and going and going and going. And when you decided something like a macrobiotic diet, were you reading books? I mean, Google didn't exist then. So how are you finding out this information? Well, I was always interested in the world of holistic and alternative therapies just in, in general. But I went to the library or I went to a bookstore. And I read a book, you know, Super Immunity for Children. I think that's what it's called by um, Leo Galland, who's still practicing now. And I just did all kinds of research. And there was always somebody in a 
in the index talking about another holistic doctor. So I got in touch with them and I just kept going and going until hopefully I'd find something. But it was not an easy battle. So you spent about 10 years doing that sort of research, trial and error, taking me to all different types of doctors, specialists, healers, etc. I remember bits and pieces of it, but I'm sure it's a lot clearer in your mind. When we finally got to Dr. Charlotte Cunningham Rundles, who was the person that diagnosed me with hyper IgE Job syndrome, what was your reaction to that? Do you remember that sort of moment or day or time of being there and her saying, this is what your daughter has after all this exploration? Oh, absolutely. There was a sense of relief because I knew in my gut that something was not right. I couldn't pinpoint what it was, and I didn't know how to to help you other than everything else I tried to do. So knowing that somebody had, you know, she knew in two minutes when she did her the blood work with you, this is what I think she has. Let's do a little more exploration. And then we at least had, you know, at least an area to explore. And then here we are today. What did we do after that? Do you remember? I mean, I know I've been on this one drug for most of my life, but was that her immediate? I don't remember. I'm unsure. I'd have to kind of go back to, you know your history, which we have volumes of. um... You've always done a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal job at keeping notes and track of all this. I mean, she's got pieces of paper of every doctor, every medicine, the time things were taken, and it's been so helpful to be able to go back and look this stuff up. But it's an interesting thing that we received this diagnosis. And then what? And then what? Yeah, I'm trying to recall what it was. You know, I'm thinking back to being up at Mount Sinai, seeing Charlotte Cunningham Rundles, and she said Steve Holland was the person that was going to be up there in the next few months or so, and she would like you to see him. And he's, I don't know, the head of the Department of Immune Deficiencies in um, at the NIH, and he was studying Job syndrome as well as a whole other bunch of... Uh, primary immune disease, and he was going to be at Mount Sinai with students there, and she suggested that you come by and let them, let you meet him and let the students see who you are and what's going on, and we ended up doing that, and he was lovely. He was, prior to that, we had been to so many doctors that needed some major compassion skills, um, ways of talking to people to patients, to parents. They really needed some major TLC or learning tools. Um, So when meeting Dr. Holland, it was really lovely to see how he respected you and your wishes. And he suggested that you come down to the NIH and you were not ready to do that. You didn't want to go there and either have an MRI, have them figure out, do all kinds of testing. And he respected your wishes. So it's an interesting thing that you bring up because You've always said that you followed my lead. Mm -hmm. You've always been about, I'm not going to force you into doing anything. I'm not going to force you to go to therapy or look into certain things. It's what was working for me. I was living as much of a normal lifestyle as I possibly could as a 10-year-old, as a preteen, as a teenager, as a college student, and you were sort of allowing me to go with my flow. What made you take that approach? I guess I just felt that it's your life. And 
I needed you to be comfortable with whatever it might be. And you are uncomfortable enough with so much of what was going on, you know, thinking about you going to summer camp and wearing long sleeves the whole summer and trying to make light of it amongst your friends, like, oh, no, I feel more comfortable this way and making making light of it when you were dealing with, oh, my skin is all broken out and I don't want everyone to see it. That was your choice. I couldn't tell you to do otherwise. And I guess I just always feel that way. I think I deal with you that same way in general as an adult. I think about how you grew up with the most incredible and supportive parents, and I know you feel that way. What lessons do you feel like they taught you in parenting, especially in sort of this dynamic situation? Well, I think my last comment was exactly who my parents were, which was, you know, I grew up in a point where my parents really gave me the space to explore and do what I wanted to do when I knew plenty of other parents of my contemporaries who made them feel guilty, didn't allow them to go to California and explore, go to Europe on their own and figure it out. You know, they were just supportive. And it was uh, well before you can communicate with social media or know where anybody is or they let it be and they trusted in me. And I guess it worked out pretty well. And I'd say that you do the exact same thing with me. I think about years ago when I was in Israel for one of the first times, my parents called and said, okay, we're coming to visit next week. And I'm like, oh my God, what do you mean? Why next week? And it was so clear that my dad was coming to make sure that I came home and my mom was coming to make sure I did what I wanted to do with my life. True. And it's just, it's so telling of who the two of you are. Not that you don't want me in New York, and I know that, but I think that that was something that really stood out, that you wanted me to live my life, be happy and healthy. That's all I all I asked for you. That's all I wish for anybody, honestly, but particularly you. Thank you. So on the flip side, what was your or what has been your biggest fear related to my illness when I was growing up? Uh, that's a huge question. I mean, just seeing your child in pain, not being able to do anything about it. I know I've said it to you a million times. If I could take on the pain, I would do it in two seconds. But obviously, I take it on in a different way. But if I could make it go away, I would do it, give you my arm, my leg, my whatever, especially this new leg. But anyway, we'll get there. <laughs> so when I was in high school, you were the director of a holistic healing center. What role did my health play in you taking that job? You mentioned that you always had this interest in alternative healing, but where did my condition and my situation sort of fall into that? I mean, you may be disappointed in hearing this, but I don't think it had anything to do with you. What? <laughs> yeah, I just think it was an opportunity of a lifetime and in an area that I really believe a lot about. It was also dealing with somebody who had a traditional medical degree. So there was a medical director as well as somebody who believes in um, complementary medicine. So I sort of live in that world of trusting they can work together. It's a very, very delicate dance, but I think when done properly, it can really be helpful. And obviously the bonus would be finding somebody that would be helpful for you, which we did try a few things. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think back on because looking back, especially given how hot the wellness scene is these days, 
what was going on there was like well before its time. And I think about some of the treatments that I had and I wasn't really into it and open to it. I did it, but I don't think that I was like, oh, this makes such a difference or it could make such a difference. Why don't I come back here every week and really follow this person's protocol? But it was just not for me. I didn't, you know, as I talk so often on the podcast and in general, I didn't want to be defined by this. So if I was going there regularly and being treated and changing my diet so drastically, I'd be that different from my friends. I guess. I don't know. I mean, I think the bottom line is, was that you needed to own what you were going through and you just went through all the processes that I may have suggested as part of this complementary medicine regimen as, okay, I'll give it a try, but just as you did with going to all the doctors before you were diagnosed, you gave it a shot because that's what you did. You know, I don't think until it really was something that you owned, could you possibly get anything out of all of these things? I think that's just pretty clear. You really need to own it. Were you surprised when I decided to become more public about my health in like 2012? I guess maybe I was. Yeah. I think so. And I mean, obviously, you've gone way beyond being Here we public. are sitting. <laughs> um, but I think it's all about who you are and have always been. You know, you you are somebody who tries to do the right thing for so many other people. You've got a great attitude. You know, you're, you were, were, have always been the little kid at, you know, age year and a half running up to people and giving them a big hug. You barely knew them. I mean, not just on the street, random people. But, That'd be creepy. But you always made everybody feel so loved. And you're still that person. So um, I'm not surprised. I wonder where that came from. <clears throat> <laughs> now that I'm older and have sort of come out of this shell after years of hiding, how do you see your role as a caregiver or as it relates to my health? It's interesting. I I guess to some degree, it's the same position I've always been. Totally there to support you, trying not to smother Kate you in any way, doing the, uh, I'll say Jewish mother, but just doing the mother thing of, you know, being concerned. And I try to hold back on questioning you on things because I want you to f do you but I'm still there to remind you or ask you or again, but not to smothercate you. And so here I am. Yeah, I think it's always been a really helpful approach where I don't feel like you're nagging me or nudging me. I mean, we were on the phone the other day and you said, did you get your blood work? And I was like, huh, I didn't get my results. So thanks for that reminder. It's always been really helpful. And it's interesting when I was thinking about this conversation, I was thinking about the time a few months ago when I was standing in Central Park waiting to go have some dental work done. And I thought about how I was in excruciating pain. I wasn't really happy with my dentist. I knew that work needed to be done. And I called you screaming my head off. I can like feel what I felt like in that moment of being in so much pain, so uncomfortable, so annoyed, so frustrated, and you having to be on the receiving end of that. What is that even like? I, I, we've never had this conversation before. What's it like to get those kind of calls? Well, it's obviously painful and try to come up with the comforting words and not saying um, anything lame, just really trying to be 
pragmatic about it and, you know, um, clear about what you can do next or calm down and then we can communicate. Um, I have to give your father a shout out because he's actually quite good at helping me not go quite over the edge because he's he's just capable of doing that. And that's really helpful. There are times when I've needed his support to do that. And so he's been great with that. So shout out to Harry. Yeah, that's actually a really good point that you bring up. So you've always been my real support system as it relates to my health. And my dad's been around and he's involved to a certain extent, but you've been the real like leader or driver in this. Who and what do you lean on to get through this? And maybe more so in those early years when we were still trying to figure out a diagnosis, but what did that look like for you? Hmm. That's interesting. I guess I'm pretty stoic. So I just kind of hold it all and I can kind of mostly deal with it all myself. And when I can't, you know, I have my sister that I can communicate with as support. And sure. My brother. Fortunately, we have terrific relationship and he's a vet. So it's a little different, but he does have some major medical ideas and is very helpful. Um, and again, your father was really supportive all during this time. You know, I don't think he knew what to do, but he knew he needed to be there and be there to listen or just be. And he he did that. He accomplished that. So we work pretty well as a team as a result of that. You definitely do. What about your friends? I mean, how much and when did you decide how to loop people in? Because as you said, you really let me lead the way. So when I was going through things growing up, how did you decide when and if you told people? Well, I didn't. I really talked about it as we lived it, which was, oh, she's got another ear infection. Oops, now she's got pneumonia. Oops, Harper's not doing well. She's got to go in the hospital for a blah, blah, blah. Oops, she's got a, something else going on. Um, and they just, they were there to listen to me, but they didn't know anything more because they, I didn't give the diagnosis. That was for you to say, yay, it's okay. Did people ever question that? Not really. Not really. I guess I presented it the way I was living it, which was we're trying to figure it out, you know, and we don't really know. Did you feel like you were hiding? Hmm. Not necessarily. No, not necessarily. Because I didn't know. I didn't really have the answer. Right. But once we got the diagnosis, we had somewhat of an answer. I mean, it's this weird thing where we have this diagnosis, but we don't have a plan of action of what to do. I mean, when I asked you what we did, we both have no idea. So it was cool that we got this name, but so what? Well, I do remember feeling that way once we got the diagnosis and we didn't know like, okay, so now what do we do with it? I don't think there were any great answers. There was, you know, be on an antibiotic for the rest of your life and hope that you don't get any of these really horrible infections. And uh, so it was good in one sense, certainly, but we really didn't have a major plan. So I guess not telling my friends specifically what it was didn't really matter because I didn't have anything new to share other than a name, you know, or, yeah, what it was called. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Beekeepers Naturals. Honey has always been one of my favorite products, and it's how I sweeten most things. 
I fell in love with Beekeepers Naturals because of the transparency they provide about their products. They know that consumers want products that are sustainable, high quality, and chemical free, and they truly deliver. Plus, they're doing everything they can to save the bees. Bees don't just make honey. They also make powerful superfoods like propolis, royal jelly, and my absolute favorite, bee pollen. I put bee pollen on top of my matcha lattes, and it's delicious. It's also a great boost of bee vitamins, minerals, and amino acids. Whether you want products that bring you endurance, immunity, productivity, or calm, there's a Beekeepers Naturals product for you. Try their superfoods from the hive by going to beekeepersnaturals.com visible and type in the code visible at checkout for 10% off. Again, that's beekeepersnaturals.com visible and type in the code visible at checkout for 10% off. And now back to the show. I know there's a lot of scenarios that have stuck with you over the years, whether it's doctor's experiences or places we've gone where people were sort of shaming me or made me feel crappy because of what I was dealing with. Can you give us some of those experiences? Well, I guess one of my least favorite was when I, one of the few times, I don't want to say I coerced you, but I said um, you had gone to the head of dermatology um, at NYU at the time, pediatric dermatology, and your nails were sort of not quote unquote normal. And the doctor asked you if you would come and be there so that you can be in a room and let all these residents look and check you out. And um, you were not so sure you wanted to do it. And I said, if you can possibly help one person learn about this, wouldn't that be great? And much to my dismay, they treated you like a specimen. I mean, they walked in the room instead of saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. Thank you so much for being here. Many of them did, but I know that more didn't. And they just like looked at you and treated you like a specimen. And I was so upset that I let that happen. So that was one that was really rude. I and remember off. it. I do really remember that one. And I remember telling the doctor about, you know, the head of the department, how terrible and he needed to do some work in that category. Um, you know, one other kind of ugh, horrible one for me this is for me personally, not necessarily you, because you were not even two years old. And I don't know if you want me sharing this, but you had it, um, an abscess or something going on in your on the back of your skull. And we got you into the hospital and they couldn't sedate you easily. Anyhow, we'd spent like, I don't know if it was two and a half days or two days of trying to sedate you. Yeah. And my eyes are bulging out of my head going, huh? This happened? Yeah. And then we finally got you sedated. And this person, I don't know if it was the doctor, can't really identify who that was at the time, said, we also want to do contrast on this. And I said, well, can you tell me what the possible negative effects might be from the contrast? And just as blunt as I'm saying it now, well, she could die. I was beside myself. And I am not and I was not a hysterical woman, mother, whatever. And I just said to this woman, you're not doing it. You'll do it without. Wow. So we've had some experiences, you know. In having so many of these experiences, and we still deal with them today, and you come to plenty of appointments with me, are there any specific things, tips that you would give to 
doctors or people thinking of getting into medicine or even in the wellness world that you think would be helpful for people to know on the bedside manner and being a bit more compassionate and talking to people like humans, not specimens? I think that's just what they should be doing. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And uh, I know you had somebody on your podcast that talked about some organization. I think she... Lauren Chiarello. Talked about changing the culture and learning how to deal with patients as well as uh, parents and caregivers because they're people too. And just maybe flip the switch and look at it as if it was a family member of your own or yourself how you would want to be talked to. That was episode 15 with Lauren Chiarello, and she was talking about her experience at Sloan Kettering and how she was a patient there, she was an employee there, and she also was a volunteer to provide some insight onto what it's like to be a patient and to be treated like a human, not just a specimen or a sick person. So is there anything about playing this role in my life that you feel like you haven't shared with me that's been eye-opening or, you know, insightful about this experience? Hmm. No, because I think we're pretty close and we're pretty honest with each other. You know, I could say straight out that, yeah, I'm, I don't want to say scared shitless, but I get nervous when something isn't right with you. And I've just got to like talk myself down and say, we're going to get past this. She's going to get past it. She's going to do fine. She's a strong woman and on we go and you know that's what I believe but it does get scary at times as I imagined it is for you yeah I mean I'm thinking about when we went down to the immune deficiency foundation conference a few years ago and seeing a lot of people who were definitely a lot sicker than I was and me being in this Facebook community of people with my condition and hearing stories from the NIH and all these sort of Things that we had never done prior to, you know, 2012, my sort of coming out year, did hearing these people's stories and learning these experiences make you feel better? Did it scare you more? What was that like for you? I guess it was really like a combination platter because I was thankful that you hadn't experienced so many of the sort of dreadful situations so many of the people that we met along the way had already had and at all different ages. But then it also put in the possibility of how scary those things are. So I guess it was sort of really a mixed bag. But I guess there was some um, relief, if you will, knowing that you're not alone. I mean, there's something to be said about that. It may be such a small number of people that actually have Job syndrome in the world. But I guess feeling as though you're not alone is not a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I chose to not have that for 27 (laughs) years of my life, but I clearly didn't want that. You know, it's so funny to think back on now that I've met all these people through the podcast and before launching the podcast, meeting all these people with different conditions. And even if they're completely different from what I deal with, there's something that like we can relate to one another. Camaraderie. Uh And I just think I didn't want to be defined by my health. But do you think that's always what it was? You didn't want to be defined by your health or just you weren't ready or maybe a combination of both? I think also, like you said, a combo platter of wanting to be a normal kid. Right. You know, the symptoms that I dealt with most of the time, as you obviously know so well, allowed me to live a normal life. It didn't really prevent me from doing so much. I mean, there have certainly been times where I've had to 
bail on certain plans, but nothing that stopped me from going to school, going to camp, going to travel. All these things have been possible. Fortunately. And I think, again, a lot of credit to you for sort of supporting me and recognizing that I can still do this stuff and live this normal life. So a little while ago, you mentioned your knee. Yes. What about my knee? (laughs) So last month you had knee replacement surgery and there was a bit of a role reversal and we haven't really talked about this. So I'm excited to be doing it here. (laughs) You had surgery and for like a week or so after I was basically at your house almost full time. What was that experience like for you? Well, it felt very strange because I am very independent and I guess it's a, a strange role for me, but it was nice knowing you were there. It was nice knowing that you set aside the time to be there in any way that I needed you. So I can call it a good experience. It was an interesting role reversal. So I appreciate that. Was there ever a time in your life where you were taken care of like that? Well, I I don't think so. I've, I've also been fortunate to not have many illnesses. And I don't know where there's wood around here. Oh, here's some wood here. Um, Yeah, I've been fortunate. This same said knee. I had arthroscopic surgery, but my parents were alive at the time and they came into the city and helped at least that first day. And, you know, I marched on. I went back to work right away. So um, I guess not. It's interesting because, you know, I remember thinking about you going to the surgery and being like, I don't even think she's scared about the surgery. Maybe I'm wrong. I think she's more afraid of having to be taken care of and being catered to. No, not true. Not true. I didn't really know what I read a ton about what I would be dealing with. And I think like a lot of things in life, not until you experience it, do you really know what that is. So I didn't really know. And uh, I guess I've been fortunate because so far so good. Um, moving and grooving pretty well. So, no, that was, here I am. I love that. No, she's doing phenomenally well. I had no idea what to expect and did not do any of the reading that she did because I am not a researcher in any way. But I'm shocked at how well she's moving and grooving, as she says, after the surgery. So you mentioned that you're independent, which is one of my favorite things about you and definitely something that I took after from you. A few years ago, you learned transcendental meditation because you had come to an event that I produced and I learned TM and I thought it was this really valuable resource. And when people ask you about your practice and how it changed you, you always say, it didn't really change me much because I'm already a chill person. I'm already a relaxed, calm person. How do you maintain that chill? I don't know. I think it's just, quote unquote, who I am. And I do think it has changed me to some degree in that it has me, again, sort of slow down and focus and take a breath in a way that's different than just saying, okay, I'm going to sit and take a breath. So it has made some changes. I don't think maybe as dramatic because when I think of yourself or your father, for that matter, much more hyper, much more animated personalities, it's a dramatic difference to even just stop for 20 minutes twice a day. For me, not so much. Um, So I think that's really the difference. It's not that it hasn't been meaningful for me, but perhaps not as much as some other people. 
That will make Joanna, our teacher, very happy to hear. <laughs> um, I know this, but I obviously want our listeners to be clued in in still taking care of me and being the real glue in our family and in so many aspects of your life. What do you do and how do you take time for yourself? Hmm. Well, I think I just do anything that I really want to do. Fortunately, you know, I have some really dear friends that I spend time with and I'm also happy being alone. I like my alone time. So that all works for me. Um, Keep talking about painting, keep talking about reading a bit more, sort of an old story for me, and I do have the time to do it. I guess at some point it may actually happen, but I don't feel like I'm not taking care of me. Let's put it that way. So that feels good. Do you feel like you're doing everything in life that you want to be doing? Yes. And I'm sure with this new knee. New knee, I can actually ride a bicycle. That's actually something... I would like to be doing. So we're going to do that together this spring. That sounds good. Because I haven't been on a bike since I was 10. 10, I think. When I had a major... uh, Bike accident. Bike accident, and it really scarred me, and I decided I want to get back on a bike. So we're going to do that together. It's going to be a huge uh, thing. Dad will be thrilled. Absolutely, except he's going to try to hustle us to... All right, faster. Let's go. Hurry up. Let's go. <laughs> helmets. Must have helmets. <laughs> I will say well, that. That goes with that side. I would not be here today without that. I'm so glad that you were open to doing this. I know you're not someone who, again, likes to be in the spotlight. So I appreciate you doing this and being open to talking. I would ask her where you can find her. But good luck getting my mom to accept your friend request on Facebook. She has hundreds of pending friends and they're people she loves dearly, but she's just not interested in dealing with the social media stuff. So if you have a follow up question or anything you want to discuss with my mom, you can email me. Hello at madevisiblepodcast.com. And I'm happy to pass it on to her. And that's fine. I'd be happy to get it passed on to. But again, as Harper said, social media is not for me. Thanks, Mom. Love you. Love you, too. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts. <laughs>